Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is live, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. Now on to the show. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 131 with my guest, Damon Mason. Damien, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me here, Casey. This is an honor and a privilege. I appreciate it. It's uh, very much an honor and privilege for me because you're the first guy that actually sent me a book. That I that I didn't have to pay for, so I, I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you having me because uh, your your audience needs to hear about this because I get the idea that many of your audience are going to be attending the Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, and I'm going to be on stage talking to them. And I thought, well, then why not make sure that you, Mr. Seymour, have a copy of the Do Business Better book because we'll be being breaking references from the Do Business Better book to them while we're in Nashville. Well, so I, I had a chance to read through uh, Do Business Better. And uh, you know, it, it's a it, there's a lot of good stuff in there. A lot of a lot of things that I would uh, I would say that people need to go and read. And there's some, it's very common sense, very um, very easy to read type of type of stuff in that book. So it's it makes it be it's not boring. It's a quick read. It's one of those things, and, and you you're you're staying in tune, and you have lots of great stories. So uh, hats off to you on on your on your book here. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate you being a reader and, and, and a client and all those things. So uh, whatever we can share with your listeners that they can glean something from, I don't know if any of them uh, keep up with my stuff, since we probably have a little bit of a, uh, a crowd that maybe some of them know who I am, but I'm a farm guy, and I'm an ag guy, and that's my background, and now I wrote a book about business. And then there's some people that say, well, I thought you are an ag guy. And I said, well, let's not pretend that agriculture is not a business. You know, those big pieces of equipment that you sell, uh, the, you know, the, we, we've come a long way from the the one the one the one bottom plow that's right. behind a horse yeah. so if you think this is not a business obviously everybody that listens to moving iron knows it is because those dollars those dollars don't come from nowhere that come in and buy that big machinery so this is all about business and the do business better book while it's not an ag book it is a business book and there are agricultural references yes there are there are several in there so i, I read through the book and, and one of the biggest overarching themes that i found when i was reading it had to do with um basically you know, being being risk tolerant and being able to understand that when it's time for you to do something to make that decision and move forward, and then be willing to, uh, you know, adjust on the fly. That's really kind of what I was. If I had to give you an elevator speech on the book, that was the one thing that I took from it. So, talk about your motivations about writing this book and and where it comes from and 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 your thought process and putting this all together. Yeah, everybody has a, a book in them. I mean, that's been said before. There's all kinds of people. If you were sitting at the tavern and, you know, even in a small blue collar town like where I'm from, Huntington, Indiana, you hear people like, oh, I could write a book. I could write a book. I'm like, well, actually, you can't read nor write. I'm sorry, pal. <laughs> anyway, you know, there's people like that. But the reality is, many of us have a book within us. I've written self published books before that I always sold in the back of the room because I make a living getting on stage and talking at corporate events. But it's time for a more full-blown, I won't say legitimate, but a full-blown business-oriented book. And uh, a friend of mine that's in the business, he actually wrote the foreword for it. And he's got several New York Times bestsellers. And he said, you know, you know a lot about business. Why, why are you not just talk to these people about what you know? 
And then my wife said, Damien, give write the book that you wish someone had given you 25 years ago when you started out. And I think a lot of people like your listeners can appreciate this, Casey. You know, I'm a blue-collar kid from a small dairy farm, average-sized dairy farm in Indiana. Lived through the 80s, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of people, you know, on the farming operation know exactly what I'm talking about when I reference that. So you're you're a blue-collar kid. Your dad works nights on the railroad, and me and my mom and some of my siblings worked on the farm. So I've always worked, and uh, I've always had a thing for business. You know, my mom always thought, "Oh, you got to go get a job. You got to get a job." And that's the way that they raised us. You know, some people are raised to be entrepreneurs. They're raised to be business owners, or they're raised to assume the family business. Well, there wasn't really much of a family business for us to assume because nine kids and a sixty cow dairy and a hundred owned acres don't amount to a whole lot when you split it nine ways. So I always wanted to be my own business person, and and I had a corporate job that I quit when I was 25 years old to become a political comedian. So everything that I have amassed, you know, the farms that I own or the investments that I have or the lifestyle that I'm able to live came about from the very beginning of I quit my corporate job. I was still paying off my college loans and I wanted to be uh, self-employed. The two big driving factors for me were creativity and being more in charge of my own compensation. Now, there's a lot of folks that are listening that probably are on a commission, and they like that they can be in charge of their their compensation. Maybe they own their own business, and that helps them be in charge of their compensation. I worked for corporate, and they gave me a, a raise or a few thousand dollar bonus. Well, that's nice, but you're not really in charge of your compensation. I guess I like the idea that it's on me. So 25 years ago, I took the plunge. I quit corporate America, and my business was selling political comedy shows. I was a political comedian. I had just started out. Didn't have a whole lot going on. Had three gigs lined up for the rest of my career when I took the plunge for $1,200 of gross revenue. So that's a nice backstory. And then everybody's listening to this saying, well, that's a neat story about you, but what about me? Well, you either sink or swim. And I didn't have this whole thing, as you and I talked about before we started recording, Casey, where a lot of folks... They analyze and analyze and analyze and analyze. And I'm going to make this decision. We're going to start this business. We just got to gather some more data. And after one year, after 18 months, after 24 months, you're just putting off the decision. You're just putting off the whole thing. You're not, you don't need any more data. And other people say, well, you kind of shoot from the hip. Yeah. Well, you were young and single. Yeah, I get all that. But People say that that's excuses. You know, I would have quit my job and become a political comedian too if I was 25 and didn't have any wife and kids. Well, you were once 25 and didn't have any wife and kids and you didn't. So let's not pretend, Mm -hmm. you know. So there's a lot of that. So the risk part of it, I guess, is the start to book off, Casey, by talking about risk tolerance. If you want to be successful in business, you better, you don't need to make risk your friend. You don't need to make it to where you're never scared, but you got to be a person that can take on some degree of risk. And then the reality is anymore in this day and age, all of us are at risk. Your dealership, your employee could get bought out or closed down three months from now. And now you're figuring out the next thing. So there's really nothing that's guaranteed for any of us. Yep. Now, and to your point there, you know, my idea for this podcast, I had about, I've had it for five years before I started. And I've been doing it now for, well, may it be two years. So, um, you know, previous to that, I always had a reason why. You know, I was like, "Oh well, I don't have this. I don't have. That. I don't know how to. I don't know how to get on a, a SoundCloud. I don't know how to upload my podcast." And this, that, always a reason. And one day, it just clicked in my head, like, "Hey, you know what? If you're going to do it, do it. And there's no better time than now. Kind of figure it out how you go." And you know, my first 
130 sucked so um you know here hopefully this is the one that works but but it's uh you know it's one of those things where you just have to just go do it right and sooner or later you're going to make that decision and, and either you're going to sink or you're going to swim and waiting to be perfect like you talk about in your book there's a difference between being good and perfect and i think that was one thing that stuck out to me in there that i i would say I was too worried about making sure everything was perfect before I went out and did it. And, and when I realized that I'm never going to be perfect at it, it, it really made the decision easier to move forward. Yeah, you know, when you write a book, and I can tell you more about the actual process, as you originally had asked, but since we're on the subject of perfection and better, everybody, that, you know, every one of us has a level of fear, you know, and I'm not some rah-rah motivational speaker, you know, I'm not Joel Joel Osteen out here, we must overcome our fear, I'm not getting religious on you, everybody has that, and you can say, well, you know, Damien over here, he just, he just goes and does that, yeah, and I look at people, and I use the example in the book, I think I'm a risk taker because I've always started my own thing, tried my own thing. I've put money at risk, uh, you, you know, become a comedian. Hell, I didn't need training to do any of that. People, people don't get it like, oh, well, did you have? No, nobody discovered me. Nobody uh, trained me to be a comedian. I was just a funny guy with a, a farm boy background, an agricultural economics degree, and a career at selling lighting fixtures. So none of that is really what holds you back. And so we're all afraid a little bit. It's just that there is that thing that becomes excuses. And they'll say it's, if they admit they're afraid, what they maybe won't admit is they're just making up excuses. It's not bad to be comfortable. You know, a buddy of mine says, <laughs> the guy that wrote the foreword to this book says, he says, there's a bunch of people that think starting your own business is a dream. He says, hell, it's a nightmare. You know, it's not easy. Ask the guy that owns the seven dealerships right now if every day of it's a dream. Some days, yeah, the combines are rolling off the lot and uh, everybody's uh, everybody's credit is actually uh, good and you're not upside down on any payments. That's not every day. So there's days that are not good for everybody. So we all kind of have our excuses. We all have our fear. I guess what was good for me was I just always stuck with the idea that I wanted to be in charge of my own thing. Going to the corporate events when I was just an employee, I never thought like, okay, I'm in charge. And then when you quit your job, you start working for other people doing comedy gigs, let's say. It dawns on you're not really in charge then either. You're still serving other clients. And that's a big point that I make that you and I both know we all work for somebody. Right. Yeah. You know, we're all working for somebody at some point because you can't just sit around and pay yourself. At least I can't. You can't. So that's that's a reality that sets in. But at least you're in charge of your creativity, your compensation to a certain degree because you can work harder and actually get some fruition from it. Yep, absolutely. All right, so let's jump into a few things that, that are in the book that I wanted to bring up with you. So um, the book is, is full of great lessons and stuff that you went through. And, and I, I didn't realize that you have, you've been in, in, what, 40 different movies? I didn't realize that till till I read the book here. But um, the one thing that stuck out to me, you were on the set with uh, Leslie Nielsen and you are talking about... Um, you know, you ask him some advice, and you're always picking brains and, and trying to figure out what it was. And he said something to the effect of, "If you want to uh, be a good actor, get better." And that was kind of his that was his thing. And that's a, you know, I probably when I just kind of putting myself in your shoes there. You know, I I love picking people's brains and trying to figure out what they do to be successful. And if somebody told me, "Well, just get better," um, I'm gonna be kind of like I don't know why I asked you that question because that is the dumbest answer I've heard anybody give me but it's actually pretty profound and you stop me sit back and think about it he it's exactly right how are you going to make yourself better than you were the day before and I think that's that was a great probably one of the best pieces of advice 
that I found in that book that, that probably was given to you at a young age. Yeah, it was. I was about, uh, what was it we filmed? I was 29 years old, maybe 30 years old. Leslie Nielsen, who's dead now, you know, he he was being funny, but I've never lost sight of that. Well, he's being funny when he says, Mason, do you want to be a good actor? You want to be a successful actor? And I said, yeah. He said, I got two words of advice for you. Get better. And then, you know, the people stand around and laugh. And I'm sure he probably told that to a hundred young people over the time of his career on set. And granted, I really wasn't an actor. I never introduced myself and said, well, I'm an actor, you, you know, but at that point in my life, if you're getting paid to be on a set in front of the movie cameras, in front of the lights with Leslie Nielsen, by God, you're an actor. And so that really resonated with me. You go back to the trailer and, uh, you know, get changed for your next scene and it dawns on you. I'm an actor. So today it's my job to get better at acting. So everybody listening to this podcast, you know what? Some days you're the chief mechanic at the dealership. Some days you're there hosting the field day. You're not a mechanic anymore unless a person asks you a mechanical question. What if they ask where the bathroom is? Now you're a tour guide. What if they ask you uh, how things are behind the scenes at the dealerships? They're trying to get a little gossip on you. You know what you are then? You're a public relations person. What if then they ask you about this piece of machinery and say, well, you're behind the scenes. You know, you work on these things. Tell about it. Now you're a salesman and a consultant, a consultative mechanic. You know what I mean? At everything that we do, we can all say, well, that's not my job. Or we can say, in this moment, that's my job. By God, I'm going to get better at it. Make sense? No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You got to kind of do jack of all trades sometimes to make to make the make the uh, make everything kind of set up and be firm. Casey, there's another aspect of the better part that I guess I made the point in the book: do business better. That it might be a clever title, and I could have been more of a huckster and said how to make a billion dollars doing nothing, how to lay around your couch eating funyuns and be a success, and that's. That's a bunch of crap. I mean, I don't believe those things, and I don't fall for those things, and I am saddened when I hear people do. That's charlatan, fraud, snake oil salesman kind of stuff. I can't promise you that you're going to lay around, eat Funyuns, and be successful. But I can say if you just take a few guiding principles from this book, some of them that I'm helping you learn from me the hard way, and also profiling, as you've already talked about some of the examples, if you just... For for the three hours it takes you to read the book, let's say, if you just apply some of those lessons, I think you can get better. I'm, what if you get 20% better? Well, 20% better is pretty darn good. You know, what if it's 10% better? That's pretty darn good for any of us. Take what you earn right now, take a level of happiness you have and say, what if I was 10% happier and 10% more uh, revenue generating each year? That's better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, the other one other thing that was in here that I that really stood out to me was the you had you had an example of two different bulldozer operators that you had, and one was a loved to be a bulldozer operator, owned his own company, loved being a bulldozer operator, loved moving dirt, loved going out working the land, doing the whole thing. Um, the other guy also loved being an operator, loved being in the machinery, doing all that stuff, but he also wanted to make sure his business was successful and that in order to do that, he may have to make sure that he managed his people and managed his resources so he could do that. Talk about that dynamic when you talk to people, whether it's in the ag business sector or just in any other business sector out there. There, there are so many examples of that that you can just go through time and time again. There is, and you know what? Uh, it's something we can all learn from. And uh, in the book, of course, I call it the tale of two bulldozer operators. I have employed both of them, meaning I have engaged when you own a couple of farms, and I've owned four farms, and some of them needed 
fence rows cleaned out, ponds, drainage, dams, wasps, all this kind of stuff. You do enough work over the time that certainly you get to know them. So that's the example, like you said, that one of them really runs a great bulldozer and that's where he's comfortable. And he, he avoids some of the business aspects of being a business owner. His employee situation is always kind of tumultuous. Uh, there's some ducks that aren't, you know, in a row. Uh, there's clients that aren't getting called back. There are customer service problems, uh, unhappy customer service problems. So that is the issue. The person that runs the business from where their comfort is. And that means on the seat of the bulldozer, because that's what he really is. He's a bulldozer operator that then grew and ungrudgingly had to become a business owner. And the other person said, I want to be a business owner, not a bulldozer operator. So how this relates to everybody that's listening right now, they know everybody in there right now that's listening can say, Oh God, I know that guy. <laughs> I know that guy. He is amazing at selling machinery. And because he was amazing at selling machinery, he made a lot of money. And then the uh, owner of our dealership that had three stores died and uh, treated this guy like a son and uh, brought him in and said, you're in charge. of." He's a brilliant machinery salesperson, not a brilliant machinery dealership owner manager. I'm sure that we could use that example. <laughs> we could use that example, Casey, with farmers. Now, you're not being mean because every customer you have, every farmer that you have there at your dealership is brilliant and does a great job in their business. But let's just say some other person's customers. Everybody probably has a customer that's amazing at their craft, at their job, at their at their at their their function, meaning being a farmer. But that doesn't mean they're good at being a business person and that's where the problem is. Yeah, I can give you plenty of examples of amazing farmers um, that can grow anything out of, out of concrete, right? They can get just amazing crops, um, but they're not, they're not the best business people. So it's, it's a, uh, but on the flip side of that, like there's some great business people out there that are in ag that can't even touch the yield that that other farmer does. So I mean, it's just, it's a dichotomy, right? You know, it's one of those things, it's a yin and a yang, really, do you have, you know, a, a, a perfectly sound agronomically driven guy that's also great at business? You know, it's just, there's always one of those things that just, it's just one of those things you kind of have give and take with the other, but it's a, it's well, an amazing deal. It's, it's a real thing. And it goes to the thing of, we all know, we all, we all know we, each of us wears a, a few hats, but the problem isn't that you wear a few hats. It's that you are hiding from the one that matters. And that's really the story of the bulldozer operator. Yeah. Going out there and hiding on that machine. Cause that's where you're comfortable running that machine with all that noise about you. And if that's what you're really good at doing, then you're letting other things slip through the cracks customer issues, customer service, unhappy customers, uh, accounts receivable, accounts payable, uh, you know, client relations, employee relations, whatever that thing is. But that's the only, the, the big learning thing there is I tell farm folks, if you are the person that wants to hide in the shop and pretend you're wrenching on the coulters on the, on the planter all winter long, uh, and to avoid being at your desk, managing input costs. Uh, if you want to be just out there on a tractor working all night when you truthfully could get somebody else to probably drive that uh, grain cart uh, overnight, I get it. The crop has to come in. But what if you're letting business slip through the cracks because you're just doing what you love versus what needs to be done? You know, I'm in show. I have a showbiz background, Casey. They told me a long time ago, I went to lunch with a smart comedian, not a very successful comedian, but a smart one. 
And I said, I'm, you know, I just quit my job. This is my, my craft now. And I'm, I'm really working hard on the business side of it. And he was not a business minded one, but he did tell me something really smart. He said, you'll find that you're either a great performing comedian or you're a great writing comedian. Almost nobody is both a great writer and great performer. So it's not bad that you're one or the other, but you must, if you're a great bulldozer operator and you don't like doing the business, hire a business manager. If you're a great farmer and you know everything about the agronomics, about getting the bushels of wheat out of that acre with the least amount of input cost and least trips across the field, and you're amazing at that, good get a business manager as a consultant to help you run the business out. Yep. Yep. That's a, that, and that kind of tailors back into that, to that work ethic that comes along with, with doing those things and, and putting the time in and getting those things done because you had a, you had a story in here when you were talking to your, I think it was your niece that you were talking to and yeah. you told her she was shocked that you were a Lady Gaga fan and that, that, and, and you said you weren't necessarily a Lady Gaga fan because of, of, of the music or, or what it was, but, but her backstory and how she got to be what she is now. So, you know, she had to put in some time. She put in a ton of time to get where she's at. She didn't just show up one day and just had this God given ability to be Lady Gaga. She put in the effort. So, um, there's a, there's a lot of that, that, that people don't realize when someone actually arrives. So talk about that and how you see, how's that fit into, just the everyday world of business. Yeah, because, you know, your listeners right now are saying, hey, Mr. Seymour, I tune in here because I sell machinery out here in Iowa, and I normally we're talking about, like, our manure spreaders going to be, you know, going extinct as livestock operations, uh, you know, change their arrangement. And you've got a guy here talking about Lady Gaga. What in the hell is going on? It's, yeah, you never know what you're going to get on here. I can tell you that. Yeah, well. Well, the, that, the good news is we can all learn, and it's good for us to all look at other things. And that's the one point I was make. Having a comedy background, I'm an observer. To be a professional comedian is really to be a professional observer, so I observe everything. I'm observing right now that, you know, because your listeners don't realize, I can see you and you can see me. You get this big, tough guy from western Nebraska, and he just, like, is looking at me saying, what kind of a guy is a Lady Gaga fan? I'm a farm guy. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what's fun about this. Uh, Actually, everybody listening to this program has heard of Lady Gaga. And maybe they're a fan, maybe they're not. The way this all works is, yes, as the example I gave, my niece couldn't believe that I was a Lady Gaga fan. It was after she jumped off the roof to enter the halftime show for the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. And my niece just just gushed about how she loves Lady Gaga. She's seen her in concert and how awesome and how talented she is. And she is talented. But if people want to wrongly believe that show business at her level, because she's worth like $275 million. If they think that's just because she just showed up and was lucky one day, they don't know the story behind Lady Gaga. And this is what all of us need to appreciate. Maybe you really are naturally talented at turning a wrench. Maybe you really understand machinery and you just have a mechanical mind. Because I know people like that. They can talk about the amazing part about the rotors turning this way and why that's better with this piece of equipment. Whatever. That's all good. But that doesn't mean you'll be successful until you apply it. Lady Gaga, she was accepted into uh, music school and she dropped out. Lady Gaga went and slept around the clubs for years, taking her keyboard with her. She knows how to play every instrument. This idea that she's just some woman that can dance and wear a meat dress, she knows how to play every instrument. She's been working on music since she was like four years old. She still trains, even at this point in her career, with a voice coach every week. Now, that's something. 
Because there's a lot of people like, oh, what her levels, what? She still works with her voice coach every week that she's been with for years and years. That's dedication and work ethic. And then, of course, the point that I make is she also was a writer. She worked writing songs for the likes of Britney Spears with a songwriting uh, production company long before you ever heard of Lady Gaga. So today we all hear of Lady Gaga. And I saw a great thing about her that's not even in the book. She has a quote that she was uh, broke up with a boyfriend once that told her she would never make it. And she says, no, I'm going to not make it. You won't be able to go into a coffee shop and not hear my music. That's how big I'm going to make it. So she used her. She used those people that like, because we've all had people put us down. She used that to her, to her credit. She is a worker. Yep. Yeah. And that you used the example of Tom Brady in your book, you know, here's a guy that got drafted in the sixth round and, and, you know, he's probably the greatest quarterback to ever play the game. And he's worried every year that he's going to get cut. So he's, he's doing everything there is in the world to make sure that he's the best possible quarterback. He can be at 41 or two or however old he is now. I don't know how the guy does it. You know what? I I uh, I started having uh, I just went and got an, an, an injection in my hip, and I'm what you know seven years older than that guy. And I think, okay, I haven't been tackled by 280 pound blitzing linebackers for the last 15 years either. So the guy's amazing, but it goes down to beyond just work ethic. You know, I think it's a resilience, which I talk about in the book. There's the thing about that says I will not be. I will not be denied. And that's a big thing about being successful. You know, Lady Gaga and telling her boyfriend that when they broke up, that's more than just work ethic. That's more than just talent. That's by God, I'm going to make it. And I'm going to show you how. So you bring up four points in the book that, and that was my next, the next thing. So there's, there's four points that you, that you like to talk about in here. One is risk tolerance, drive, resilience, and vision. Um, couldn't probably set it better myself, but if you really look at, at how all those things kind of play into it, Talk about those four points and, and how they, uh, how you relate those back to what you do in business and the people that you talk with. Yeah, well, we talked about risk a little bit already when we said, you know, when you quit your job to become a political comedian, you don't come from nothing. You're still paying off your college loans and you've got a three-year-old Chevy Lumina with uh, $8,000 of debt against it. There's risk. You know? mm, so right. so I, I did that. And there's people that say, well, you were 25 and what's $8,000 of Chevy Lumina loan and, you know, $8,000 of college loan. That's a big, you know, big deal. Well, it's a, it's all relative when you're 25 and you have 16 grand of debt and you're renting your buddy's uh, loft, you're still at risk. And as opposed to the person that maybe farms 10,000 acres and they're at $3 million of risk each year, it's all relative. You know, the commas move, but it's all relative to your situation. And you've got to never get so comfortable. I don't take the risk now that I probably once did. Everybody listening to this show is like, yeah, I don't maybe roll the dice as hard as I used to because I'm pretty comfortable. Yeah, I understand that. The the risk tolerance is a big part of it. Drive is the second trait that I say that you got to have of the success traits. And that's the easiest one to learn. As I always say, there's no ambition, Gene. Casey Seymour right. doesn't work hard because he just happened to get some gene. Casey Seymour works hard and has a podcast and, and puts it on a conference and works really hard selling machinery because that's what you who you are. But it's not who you were born to be necessarily. It's what you made yourself. It's the easiest one to learn. Resilience, a lot of times when I have people on my own podcast, I ask them, I say, you're an entrepreneur, and they think resilience is it's the idea that you'll just not be denied, that you'll continue to get up from the mat. The world kicks your ass. Uh, it doesn't mean to, but it does. You'll have a bad idea. You'll have a great idea that ends up flopping. You'll have a product you put out that doesn't sell. You'll invest money into a marketing initiative, and it will not pan out. The world pushes you around. 
And it seems that the resilience is really the big one. And then the vision. And that's where I know you were going because you said you liked that. There's lots of people that can work hard. There's lots of people that can keep getting back up off the mat. And then there's certainly people that are not afraid of the risk. And so in our businesses, we see these people. But then you say, where are you going? And that's where it's like, oh, I don't know. I like what I do. I'm like, yeah, but where are you going? And that's where the vision part comes in. It's, vision is, in my opinion, seeing past what nobody else can, like obstacles. You, you know, oh, yeah, you're worried about this thing and that's what's holding you back. You're just letting that be an unnecessary obstacle. Then there's the second part of vision, and that is what are we trying to build? And that is something that a lot of people don't have. I make the point in the book that my wife and I both can look at a pile of turds and see the Taj Mahal. We've bought, you know, to, to in addition to my speaking business and farms, we've bought places and built places and renovated places. We can see the Taj Mahal through the turds. What are you building? These people that are listening right now say, well, you know, I, I've, I've got this machinery company. Well, where does it go? Where, where can it go? What thing, what, and the big one there, Casey, is, is there a group that's not being served? Rather than looking at your competition, What's the future look like? Because most people just have a hard time. They just keep looking at what's right before them as opposed to what's down the road three to five years from now. And that's one thing about the business that I'm in. We're always looking ahead. And you have to have, I can't stress enough how much how vision, how much vision you have to have. You can read all this stuff, you can look at all the data, you can, you know, play the guessing game and all this other stuff. I didn't guessed that there was going to be, you know, two epic blizzards in my area within 30 days and that the eastern side of the state that, I, that I'm in was going to be an epic flood, you know, 100-year floods and and all of everything that's going on out there. But, you know, start looking at the big picture, you know, autonomy, um, you know, self-driving tractors and, and, and those kind of things. Um, you know, I got to bet with the guy I work with that five years from now we're going to be trading in our first fully autonomous vehicle. And, you know, I, he thinks most people think I'm crazy when I start talking about that, but I don't think so. I think it's going to be such a rapid, just take off so rapidly that there's not going to be anything to stop it. I don't, I don't think you're wrong at all. And I guess, remember, a lot of folks don't have vision because they have employee mentality. And it's not bad to be an employee it can be bad to have an employee mentality, meaning I'm just going to show up here and do the bare minimum to get my paycheck, and I don't care what happens tomorrow. That is an employee mentality that is really, really bad for your company and for you because at some point, you've got to buy into the vision and hope that your company that you work for as an employee is Duly positioned. You know, you and I can both talk about all kinds of companies that go kaput. Sears. If you were an employee at Sears, granted, you're just checking out, you know, tough skin jeans. You can't do a whole hell of a lot about it. What about a smaller company where you can help drive the vision, like you are there in, in Western Nebraska, and saying, you know what I see? I mean, I can tell you my own vision. I'm sure it agrees with yours. Autonomous machinery is coming. It's going to take a little while. There's a lot of kinks to be worked out. I actually tell my agricultural people. I don't see machinery getting a lot larger because we're no. already pretty damn big and it gets to where the compaction and the field size will not hold or, you know what I mean? That'll be the limiting mm -hmm. factor. It won't be bigger. In fact, it might even downsize a little bit to become yeah. autonomous. Yep. Right there with you, man. When I look at autonomy, first off, you can't get anything much bigger than what it already is because just the 
transportation. I mean, holy shit, you're you're driving stuff from point A to point B, and you got a four-wheel drive tractor with duels or sometimes triples on it, and it's as wide as the road both lanes, and you're trying to figure out how to go across the bridge. And there's always that YouTube video out there this time of year where there's a guy that's got half the tractor up on the side of the bridge going across the bridge, you know, and then he comes down yeah. the other side, you know, and that kind of stuff it becomes it becomes a hazard, right? Mm-hmm. And as that stuff grows and, and gets bigger, then you start talking about weights and how it affects the roads and everything else. Those kind of things start playing a factor. I'm, I'm in the same camp as you are. It, once no one has to drive it, put 10 machines out there on, with six-row planters instead of one machine with 60 rows. You know what I mean? It's just it, it makes more sense. You know, it's just one well, of those you know, things. A great comparison. I'm talking to you right now on my Mac uh, my Mac laptop uh, Airbook, mm-hmm. and it is more powerful and can do 10 times the function that my desktop that I finally got rid of seven years ago could do. Now, you're saying, well, you're talking about computers and we're talking about trying to get the, the crop in and out of the field. I understand. But that's the same concept. And I see machinery. My vision for the future is less farmers, more autonomous machinery, smaller machinery. And of course, this gets some people really scared. And I say, I think we're going to probably have more contractual arrangement because of the cost of the capital that's required. If we've done that in poultry and in pork, where it's on a contractual arrangement, will it eventually happen in wheat, corn, soybeans, beef, dairy, everything where there are large, large integrators that that you work on behalf of, and you say, well, then I'm not really a self-employed farmer. Well, you're a farmer that's got a guaranteed contract, and I mm-hmm. think that's going to happen because of the capital requirements. I'm not wishing it. It's just what I see happening. Yeah. So I've, watched, I've been watching a lot of your uh, your speeches here of late, so I can kind of get an idea of what you're going to be talking about when, when it comes time for the Moving Iron Summit. But one of the biggest things that I see happening right now, and you bring it up in there, is that, you know, we you talk about how you know we were always going to be the breadbasket of the world. We're going to export all this stuff out, yada yada. And well, in order for the seed companies to grow their market share, they had to go outside of the United States and teach the rest of the world how to farm. And to your point, I've been giving that some thought. The idea that the U.S. farmer is going to be way more driven to the contractual side and doing that that specific something that's going to be completely different than what than what maybe their neighbor's doing or somebody else is doing, but they're going to grow whatever, organic wheat, or they're going to grow blue corn or whatever it might be. I mean, that, that that's that's going to be the niche that's going to save, you know, the, the U.S. farming economy, I think, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, in fact, it might be an uncommoditization, which means we'll just be not doing every single field up and down the road isn't going to be the same, you know, corn and soybeans, corn and soybeans. And, and people think that's going to be bad and you're going to be working on a contractual arrangement. That may not be bad at all because it'll bring diversification and it might be the very thing that keeps that guy down the road and his wife and his kids on that ground because they'll be doing, yeah, we only farm 800 acres and my wife does have a job in town, but you know what? We do all blue corn for flour tortillas and it actually has to have this, this, and this done to it. That's all fine. It's just the movement of the marketplace. Truth is, this has been going on for a yeah. long time. Yeah, and it's just it's one of those ever evolving things. And to your point in that speech, I was watching is if if we're not evolving to that those agricultural needs, um, and we're doing the exact same thing that's you know we're just trying to out out bushel Brazil or out bushel you know five of the like you like your example of the five largest wheat producing countries that are out there. You know, in Australia, India. 
Uzbekistan, you know, Kazakhstan, you know, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, yeah. And, and yeah, I think there's three stand yeah. countries in Australia and yeah. in India, and so maybe it's Ukraine, but either way, or Russia. So, yeah, you throw a couple yeah. of stands, Australia, India, and a Ukraine or Russia in there, we're out of the wheat game, we're not yeah. really, but we we don't, yeah, and that. it's just they can they can do a lot more stuff from an environmental standpoint. I mean, from environmental standards in Australia, but we're talking like the stand countries and, and, you know, what happens in Ukraine, those kind of things. It's a different ball game. They play under different rules. They play different, whole different concepts that they play within. And they just, it's just part of, part of being in it. You know I mean? There's things that they can do that we can't, and it's, it's going to be an issue down the road that we have to address. Yeah. And also what might end up happening. And, you know, again, we talk about vision because it's very important for our business uh, if I was a machinery person and all I thought was how much bigger can I get and how much bigger can I make the machinery, I would think I was going down the wrong path. Or I will tell you what, they wouldn't think that because that's mm-hmm. what they're thinking. I would say that about them. I'd say, no, I think the future, I think the future isn't about a bigness. I think it's about mobility. Uh, and that's going to be a big thing that shapes mm-hmm. your industry. And then of course, uh, there's going to be less farmers. So right now, uh, the reality is, there's, there's what, you know, 2 million farms and 3 million farmers and all that, but how many of them really are buying and selling equipment? You know, I'm a, I'm a farmer on paper and I have a 50 horsepower Kubota utility tractor and I'm not going to be buying, uh, I'm not, you know, a lot of machinery. So on paper, there's this many farmers. There's really your industry is basically consists of about 400,000 actual customers, probably, yeah. you, you know, and of those 400,000, pretty likely that we'll see them be cut in half in the next mm-hmm. 10 years, not because of any bankruptcies or any of that. It really just become the, the marketplace will move yeah. that way because of autonomous yeah. machine. And a lot, of, a lot of the stuff we see happen now with, the, with farm reductions are, has nothing to do with people going out of business. I'm not going to see nothing. And there is some of that going on, but the majority of it is the farm's just not big enough to support son and daughter coming back to, to run the farm and then also support dad when he retires, you know, so they, dad's yeah. barely making it with, with the one, one income that way. And then you throw basically three back on top of that. It just gets hard. And that, and that's what you're starting to see happen. And, and, you know, it's just part of it. You know, they just, well, you said, we're start, you said, Casey, we're starting to see it. The reality is that's kind of been the story since about the industrial yeah, revolution, you know, uh, uh, man and wife moved to town and worked in a factory, uh, and, neighbor farmer and his wife bought their place and doubled. Uh, you know, I did a gig for the dairy people in January and I pointed this out that while the dairy thing is in a bad place right now, this has been our story for 30 plus years. There's been too much milk for 30 plus years and we still have the number of cows. And I said, everybody acts like there's all these factory farms, but you know what? There were dairy operations when I was a kid that went from 60 cows to 120 cows. And that is a 100% increase, a doubling mm-hmm. in a year's yep. time. And nobody called them factory farms back then. But now if a 1,000 cow dairy becomes a 2,000 cow dairy, oh, my God. Right. <laughs> oh, it's been the natural flow of things. It's not that you or I are insensitive to the people that are changing their livelihood. It's just the, been the flow of things. It's probably going to accelerate, to be honest. And that's just because we can do so much more with so much less because of machinery and technology and i you know I'm preaching to the choir here when i say this but you know if you're uh, if you're in the equipment business right now you, uh, and we're trying hard to figure this out and, and working hard every day to get to that next level but um you need to face the fact that you're you're selling software inside of a of a tractor 
and however that works and how you make that work it's going to come to the point where the tractor is almost as a side effect of of what you're going to do with the different efficiencies that you're going to gain from autonomy and mapping and all that different stuff so it's just you, you got to figure that part out and be ready for the future that that's i actually hadn't even thought of that because remember you're closer to machine or you touch it every day i'm around it somewhat but uh yeah that really what what you're saying is if the the tires it goes this whole thing of there's the cost of entry hey you know what uh you're pretty good at this that's the cost of entry the tires the horsepower the steering wheel the cab with air conditioning and uh satellite radio that becomes the cost of entry because everything will have yep. that right those are function at that point. Everybody, you better have that to even show up at the ball game. Now it's what else do you have? And like you said, is it going to be the software, the technology? Yeah. Yep. No, I think there's this just never ever evolving uh, game that we got to stay in front of. And and I think your book points that out pretty regular, pretty regular on a pretty consistent basis there. So. You know, I think that uh, you hit the nail on the head with your book there. I know you said you might use videos. So for those that are watching still, it's the book is called Do Business Better. It's published by Wiley. It was written by me. It's traits, habits, and actions to help you succeed. I do promise you, not that you can lay around your couch eating Funyuns in your bathrobe all day and be successful, but I do promise you if you apply some of the lessons, the ideas, the insights from this book, you will be better with your business in your life. You know, because everybody says, oh, well, Damien, I, I don't own my own business. Is this for me? That's why we keep talking about a life and business by choice, because there's lessons in there that even an employee or even an unemployed person can apply to their life. All right. So now you've got two different podcasts that you do. One is the business of agriculture and one is the do business better podcast based around the, uh, the, the principles in the book and, and, the, and the guests that come on are all um, business related entrepreneur type people. So let's start with, uh, the business of agriculture and what's that podcast about and how's it, how's it work? Yeah, well, you were a guest. Thank you very much. And you probably will be again. That. The business of agriculture was begun two years ago with the idea that I think agriculture is already inundated with enough, uh, old, as I call it, old AM farm radio. Hey, did you see what corn did? Looks like corn moved up three cents. As I point out all the time, I listen to rural radio sometimes. If I had Marlon Bowling's job, I would take the nine millimeter and swallow a bullet after the first day on the job. <laughs> okay. Okay. Because and everybody's saying, "Oh my God, he just..." Yes, I did, and I'll tell you why. If I had to spend five hours every day trying to pretend I were excited about a one and a half cent move on the June corn price, I would be suicidal. So I, in my podcast, I said, we're not going to talk about grain charts and we're not going to talk about the weather. Agricultural people are obsessed about the weather. You know what? You got it on your phone. Pull up Noah, look at the radar. Boom, you got it. So on our podcast, we talk about the business of agriculture, issues, uh, ideas, insights, uh, what we see. When Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says we got to do something about factory farming, what the hell does that mean exactly? Uh, we talk about somebody like you know Casey Seymour and say, what trends are you seeing in machinery and what's the actual takeaway from that? Always taking it, here's the insight, here's the observation, what's it mean, boom. So that's where we do in the business of agriculture. Then in February, I launched the Do Business Better podcast because I'm doing more presentations to not agricultural crowds. Uh, so I've got the book, Do Business Better, and created the podcast, Do Business Better, geared to entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, small business people, business owners, folks that want to be business owners or small business people, or people like you that just keep up with business stuff, even though you wouldn't call yourself a business owner, but you kind of are because you have your own podcast, you guys have your stuff going. 
We wanted to keep that one where it's sharp, good, quick interviews and getting like, what do you do? What, what things are important to you? What traits do you have? What habits do you have? And I love it because we talk to folks like, here's the one thing that I learned my first year. Here's the one thing that I screwed up. I ask people, where'd you screw up? We're just steer the ship wrong. And that's that's very telling because anybody that actually has been through a few wars, if they're honest, can learn a ton from those. Yep. No, our uh, motto we have around the office there is fill fast. So I think there's a lot of ideas in that. And I, I kind of learned this through the, being in this industry and, and as fast as things change that there's an 80-20 rule. And the 80-20 rule is you figure out 80% of it and get moving and then you figure out the other 20 percent uh as you're taking uh, taking a little flack there so uh you gotta you gotta keep moving things forward and you again you said well in your book you can't be perfect you're never going to be perfect and if you're trying to be perfect you're never going to get there and you're never going to start so um I, I i think that's a that's a good lesson to learn uh everybody that says I'm, i i don't have this right you know i had a neighbor in my first farm i ever owned that uh was a carpenter and his house was not, he had half his house that was just plywood. It was just particle boards. I'm sure it's all rotted by now. And I'm sure it's because he had such issues in his head. He just knew he couldn't do it until it was perfect. Now, the reality is, would you rather drive by and if you were the neighbor, would you rather that that house be sited somewhat imperfectly? Maybe the maybe the corners are not exactly 90 degrees. Or maybe the siding is, you know, just slopes by an eighth of an inch from one side of the house to the other. Would you rather see that or rotted particle board? So the point of that is get your house sided, whether it be perfectly or imperfectly. It's better to have it imperfectly sided than to have it perfectly kind of concepted and still just particle board after 12 years in the rain. It's the same thing for all of us. We know we we know we're saying, oh, well, I'm not quite ready. It's time to go. It's time to do it, you know. Absolutely. Well, Damien, we've been we've been going it for a while, and this has been a great great time. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you let me uh, sent me a copy of this book. We had a chance to talk about it and learn a lot of good stuff from it. So, if folks want to reach out to you and maybe hire you to be a speaker or just uh, shoot you a, shoot you a note, maybe get your opinion on something, how would they do that? Yeah, I'm on social media, and you and I both keep up there at Damien P Mason is my Twitter handle. Damien Mason Professional Speaker is my Facebook page. Like me there. I put up good videos all the time. Damien Mason on LinkedIn, and then Damien, D-A-M-I-A-N, Mason, like a bricklayer.com is the best way you can find all of my stuff there. And then there's videos on YouTube, et cetera, DamienMason.com. I'd love to hear from anybody, and I do very much appreciate you having me on. You let me talk about my book. You let me talk about my opinions. You let me talk about agriculture, and here it is. Uh, it's the end of the day, so we can we can stay. We, yep. we did. Well, I think it's time for a nice glass of whiskey and a cigar. Uh, you know what? I'll have a beer and a cigar. You have the whiskey, and we'll be doing it in spirit. Thank you. I dig it. All right, Bubba. Well, we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. And thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Casey. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. Now part of the Global Ag Network. If you'd like to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at Moving Iron You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel and watch Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger, Sean Hackett, and Angie Setzer. Also, Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Please visit movingironllc.com. Here you can find information, details, and updates for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, and globalagnetwork.com. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour. Out. Iron in 
Move. 